It's a changing world, isn't it? It's amazing times we live in. You look at the uh, television this morning, and of course the price of oil was up at least this morning about 81.25. Natural gas, 5.76. We, we look at Asia. We look at what's going on in China. What's happening in Europe. Around the world. We're challenged. Unbelievable times. With that, there's opportunities. And let me say that the National Association of Royalty Owners is a foundational pathway to America's energy future and success. That's how much I believe in you, the royalty owners. Because it all begins with you when it comes to many, many drilling of oil and gas wells here in the United States. I think of back in 1859, the first commercial natural gas well in what's known now as uh, Marcellus of New York. Think what's happened since then. It's grown to be three million miles of natural gas pipeline here in the United States. Our challenge today is we have 7.8 billion people approximately in the world, 330 million Americans. Everybody needs energy. Everybody needs our support because we carry the innovation, technology, the manpower, the workforce, the know-how. And it all begins again with you, the royalty owners. When you go back to your communities, remember this. You're the voice of all of us. You're the voice of the future of energy. When it comes to the oil and gas industry, hydrogen, and on and on, you're the voice. So go back to your communities. Tell your story. Tell how it's impacted your life to be a royalty owner. How you're impacting others in the community as far as hospitals far as schools, as far as universities. Tell them your story because you are a vital part, the lifeblood, the National Association of Royalty Owners is the pathway to America's energy future and success, and you are the ones that lead that effort. And don't forget it. We need you out there telling the story over and over again. Let's see if I get this moving here. Nope. Let's see if that is that moving. All right. Okay. I uh, I think of the 7.8 billion people because they don't have the luxury. Many of those 7 billion or so don't even have the luxury. Some here in America, as far as that goes, of having tonight electricity to to, uh, to read a book, to have air conditioning. Think about it. We look around, all our lives are filled with petrochemicals, the necessary back during the, the COVID issue in the hospitals. I had a friend that went to Houston, got very sick, 
So I told him, sometime when you go to hospital, look around the rooms and see what's there. Well, you have to see it firsthand. He calls me up. said, wow, you're right. The oil and gas industries make a big impact in my, on my life. Saved my life. All the plastic involved from the shot on and on. Think of the impact that we're making. You are making as royalty owners. So again, we're talking about so many different issues. The 7.8 billion people, keep that in mind because those are people in India and China and throughout the world that need our assistance and our help because they have not had the opportunities we've had here in America to provide for our schools and our communities and our universities. Yesterday, uh, I was visiting with David Sykes. He's on the OERB board. And I uh, want to mention this in the beginning that I'm very excited about an opportunity that we have. It's about Sherwood Forest. Many of you may have heard the story about how 44 Roughnecks during World War II went to England on behalf of a request from Churchill and others that there was not enough oil to win the war. And that was 1943. In the Sherwood Forest, they were only producing about 150 barrels of oil. These roughnecks went over there, and I'm keeping the story short because I could talk about it all day. It's quite a story. They went over there and got it up to 150 wells or so, 3,000 barrels of oil per day, kept uh, drilling wells over a year and a half time frame, and some of that oil, a good portion of that oil, was used as D-Day. And I think about how the impact of our oil and gas industry has been. It's been huge. So, Ray Fredrickson, who's a producer of the Godfather movies, Godfather II, and uh, several movies of Francis Ford Coppola through the years, he and I teamed up years ago, 20 years ago, and formed a company called Graymark Productions. Gray, Mark, Graymark Productions. And uh, it, was, it was something to, uh, to challenge to me because I was in production of oil, but not in production of movies. Well, you can actually have a good well and a bad well, and you also can have a bad movie and a good movie as far as finances. But I, I learned from Gray through the years, but we formed together Gray Mark. We now have this film we're working on called Sherwood Forest. And it began yesterday. We're on site in uh, Jones, Oklahoma. And uh, we had 58 crew there, uh, actors, and all the crew behind us. I was talking about how important it is to have staff to operate this great event. It's also that same way with, with having uh, the support of, of uh, the, uh, the, you know, I was gonna say students and, and young people from across the US, but mainly Oklahoma, 58. And so we made this, we're beginning this film. It should be out next spring. We're, their location today is up at Guthrie. We're moving around in the state. Uh, it, take, it takes a while to build this, this effort because uh, we have to get certain rights. We have a script that has to be approved by so many different people. We have a, a, a narrator that we just got approved. He's been in over 225 films. He'll be announced here soon. Uh, but this is telling a story about 44 roughnecks 
to sacrifice their lives so that the British and America and the world could have freedom. And it's a great story. Greg Fredrickson and I are producing it. Uh, Greg Millot is the director. Thanks to the, the Oklahoma History Center, to OARB, the Noble Foundation, and others for getting this off because I've been working on it for quite some time. We were actually even waiting for footage uh, from England. And during the summer, because of COVID, we couldn't even get in our archives. So we kept, that kept delaying us. We finally got in the archives after several months in August or so. They sent us copies of actual footage that you only get from uh, the archives in England for this film. It hasn't been seen before. So we're excited to share that as well. When you go through your slides, and I could go through all these in particular, but there's, there's one that's, um, that I want to show that we keep, the world today has changed a lot, but you know, you go back to, uh, I was trying to think about this. Uh, the auto, even before that, the phone, I remember uh, my grandmother had the, the crank phone, party lines. Anybody remember party lines? It, it, those will admit it. I mean, <laughs> and those party lines, wow, what an impact uh, our lives have had through the years, haven't it? Because of people, innovation and technology. It's unbelievable, isn't it? From, uh, from the party line to, what is it, 13, iPhone, the Apple 13, iPhone 13. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, 2007, iPhone. Um, we've come a long way, haven't we? But a lot has happened in just the last five to ten years because we had, of course, the, the, the invention of the, of the phone, and then we have uh, the auto. Uh, in fact, my, my grandfather was born in 1871. He came to Oklahoma on a, on a wagon and horse and, and uh, brought his family. And, and then my dad was born in 1912. And uh, he was uh, born in, uh, in a very tough time, went through the Depression and all that in World War II. He had the Model A and Model T. You've probably heard of those, maybe. Maybe you've heard about them. I don't know if any of you have driven them. But... And I was born in 1956. And that was before Alan Shepard, John Glenn, and for sure William Shatner. At 90 years old, can you believe that? And even this morning out here, there's the, the uh, debate already of saying, well, he went up to space, but also we're talking about climate change. Should he have gone up there or not? So I don't know. But I do know that, that uh, the impact that innovation and technology have had is, is tremendous. And I think of all the opportunities ahead for us in innovation technology, just on natural gas and oil and so forth. Think where we've come in the oil and gas industry. We're looking at carbon sequestration. We're looking at, uh, of course, the greenhouse gases. We're looking at methane emissions. We can meet those challenges, folks. Nothing can stop our innovation technology. There's over 300, in one company alone, up in Canada, 
They have over 300 researchers combined with associations looking at opportunities just on curtailing methane emissions. We can do it because we have the willpower and think of where we've come from. Just think how quickly we've come. In fact, I imagine some of you are Zoom experts. I don't know, some of you have not seen Zoom before, but those that have may be Zoom experts because now you're a, you're a videographer, you're a video producer, an audio producer. Did you know that? Yeah, you have to be. It's a, it's a changing world. As we move through these slides, You're going to see opportunities that we have challenged before us, and that's uh, in social media, which uh, is before us. We need we can use it properly. I know Facebook. I have Facebook. I have uh, over twenty thousand followers on Facebook on National Energy Talk. America needs America's energy. That can use be used in a positive way. And of course, we've seen it used in a negative way, and these small segments of information are being tested all the time because we'll, we'll get these little fragments of information on social media. And we look also at, at uh, the media as well. Walter Cronkite in 1982 was being interviewed. How many remember Walter Cronkite? Okay. Great journalist. And he was concerned in 1982 being interviewed, he said, I don't know about the future. I don't know the future of democracy. Because I used to be a newspaper guy. And you'd read from, from the front cover to the back. I remember my grandfather turning the pages. Now it's all in just fragmented messages. But he said, we're going to lose our democracy if we're not careful. 1982. Social media comes along. Is it even smaller bites? Because in 1982, 80% of the population, according to Walter Cronkite, was getting their news from three stations at 5.30 to 6 o'clock at night. 1982. Now look where we are today. So one thing I've been, and I encourage, there's a, there's a I, and I've done this myself, I've started a, a podcast called National Energy Talk. And I hope you'll go to that. And it's, 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 it's more of a conversational type thing. It doesn't cost anything, so it's, it's not a promotional thing here today. It's saying National Energy Talk. I have interviews with different individuals. And I hope you will go to that because they're all in the oil and gas industry or in energy industry. I've had interviews with uh, uh, Ambassador Robert Jordan recently. He was a former ambassador to Saudi Arabia. And I've had interviews with Jose Bassaro, who's now leading the effort in Houston on uh, the grand energy proposition they have in, in Houston through uh, the Greater Houston Partnership. So I hope you'll listen to these podcasts because I get more out of podcasts, not just saying mine. I listen to about 10 or 12 regularly just on the energy side. And I'm getting more out of those because I get 45 30 minutes, 45 minutes. So if you're not on the podcast, on the podcast, I, I encourage you to do that. And also, I, uh, I, I encourage you to go to journals, where it is, whether it's the uh, 
Full Man Magazine or uh, GTR News or whatever it might be, I encourage you to go to these uh, different outlets, which will very much help you. Natural gas, um, I'm, I'm concerned about our future when it comes to natural gas because I don't know that everybody understands outside of our royalty owner group today, really understands the impact. I mean, think about what you've done when you signed that lease. You help a lot of folks, don't you? It's not just stopping you. Yeah, you might help provide for your, for your income or for your grandkids or your children's future in some way, whether it's education or otherwise. But you're making a tremendous impact. Tell your story. Three million miles of pipeline. We could actually blend, talking about blending hydrogen with natural gas, being talked about in a big way. Let me tell you about this. Jose Bassaro, who's on the interview, he'll talk about it on, on the podcast. There's an there's a energy partnership innovation project, funding project, that's going to raise about $3 billion, I put that's B, $3 billion to provide an energy fund for innovation technology. And it's to look at a broad view of hydrogen, natural gas, and on and on. And I, I encourage those that want to support this industry is to look at these podcasts, look at the journals, look at the opportunities before us, but we need to encourage the researchers to move forward. And so I know there'll be other communities step forward besides Houston that look at that in a big way, but that's a $3 billion fund that's being put together as far as an energy fund. Price of natural gas, um, you've seen it today, you know where it is and where it's potentially gonna go. In Europe, we're looking at uh, $20, $30, $40 during the wintertime. We don't know at this point where it's going to be heading, but Asia, uh, Europe, and of course in Mexico, the, we're looking at about 7 BCF a day that's going over to Mexico right now. 91 BCF uh, on an average right now. It's going to fluctuate over the winter months, 92 to 94 BCF. Um, a lot of natural gas that's being produced and going into other parts of the world. LNG is definitely uh, before us uh, in a big way with the terminals. We have around six or so that are very are active and there's gonna be more on the way. Um, so LNG is gonna be a factor in the future. We're gonna see about a 15, 20% increase in, the, in that demand over the next, well actually through 2030. So that's the challenge we have before us as well. So um, natural gas is something that I strongly believe in. I remember at 13 years old, first time I really understood about natural gas was uh, there's a well going to be drilled south of Elk City, Oklahoma. How many know where Elk City, Oklahoma is? Yeah, there you go. My hometown. And uh, it was a 24,000 foot test called the Green Well, 1969. And everyone, I. I mean, people were saying, this can't be done, it won't be commercial, they'll drill this, this dry hole, 24,000 foot plus well. It came in commercially, very successful, Robert Hefner III, GHK Company, 
1969. So our town was really excited about the opportunities. I remember it. Very exciting time. A few years later, I become a member of Key Club, and I'm putting up a decal on cars and buildings, whatever I can put a decal on legally. <laughs> and it's, it's the natural gas capital of the world, Elk City, Oklahoma. I was so proud to be in that town. I didn't know, I did not come from an oil and gas background. Um, I did spend too much money in 73, 74 timeframe dragging Maine, which most of you know what dragging Maine is in Oklahoma, going up and down the street waving at each other and honking. And my parents were very patient with me as I spent, now look back and I go, how embarrassing, <laughs> all this money going dragging Maine when we had such an issue going on in 73, 74. Everybody remembers the oil embargo, right? Or at least read, read about it, the oil embargo, 1973, 74. Wow. And then a few years later, in uh, 75, I was very interested in going to D.C. to become an intern. And I didn't know really what that meant. really didn't know what I was getting into because I'd never been on my own like that to go to D.C. I was uh, 19 years old. And a friend of mine who was a mentor of mine, Cooper West, out in Elk City, was in the oil and gas business and uh, real estate and insurance. And he said, you ought to look at... Uh, working for Dewey Bartlett. Well, you know Dewey. You've met Mayor Dewey, right? Well, I worked for his dad. That's how far back it goes. And I was an intern and staffer for Dewey F. Bartlett, former governor of Oklahoma at the time a U.S. senator. And he assigns me, and I didn't know much about natural gas, and I sure didn't know a whole lot about OPEC, but he assigned a few of us to write a speech on his behalf that he was going to present in 1975 before OPEC at Oslo, Norway. And here I am, sweating it out. Didn't know what I was doing, talking about. I learned a lot from working around people like that. Unbelievable. The staff that he had, and, and of course, he was so knowledgeable as a U.S. senator because, of course, he was Keener Oil and all that background that he had. Wrote the speech, but before I got through, I handed my notes to him, and he looked at it and took the notes with him, came back, and there were more red marks on the piece of papers that I presented him than, than I had typed. It was, it was, he modified it enough, and I kept those notes all these years. But I think of those individuals, like a Dewey Bartle, like a Cooper West, that took an interest in young people. And I know that you do that here too. You don't know who you may be helping in the workforce development alone. The workforce needs your help. That's why I tell, say tell your story. I have a lot of young people who are not, that I talk to, they're not going into the oil and gas industry. They're not going to go into the energy side. And we need them. We need their support. We need their, their knowledge. They definitely know how to run a computer that, uh, I have some, I, I try to think that I have some digital skills, but wow, I have people that, like Josh and others that help me on that part, and I really appreciate that. But, but we have that challenge before us so in the workforce as well. There's something that's come up too is, is concerning me, and it's, it could be handled positively or negatively, and I think the way to handle things is like what I talked about when we started this today, what a beautiful morning, is ESG. 
Environmental social governance. How many, how many have heard about that? Environmental social governance, ESG. Well, ESG is definitely a challenge because if you get a scorecard or scored on if you're investing too much in carbons or whatever, not just the oil and gas industry, but other sectors. So ESG is something that's so important, environmental social governance. And uh, I think more of embracing it because I have it on my website, markstansbury.com. If you go to the website, I have a have blog. So I'm not going to go into each one of these, but I have an ESG factor I talk about, talk about hydrogen, the hydrogen economy, talk about reliability. We just went through an issue there, didn't we? Talking about natural gas and energy business back in February in, in Texas. So you, if you go, and I had a three-part series on reli reliability. We need affordability, we need accessibility. So many factors out there that are part of the royalty owners as well.